Webster's Dictionary defines an occult as matters regarding as involving the action or influence of supernatural or supernormal powers or some secret knowledge of them. By this definition, the state of Arkansas would build their case using the occult as their murder for the 16-year-old Jason Baldwin and 18-year-old Damian Eccles. Jesse Miss Kelly Jr.'s trial was severed from them as he was going to be the state's star witness. His confession was the foundation of their unstable case. Jesse was completely unaware of the power his words held. He was arrested for telling the police what they wanted to hear thinking he would instead receive the reward money and be able to buy Big Jesse a brand new truck. Behind bars, Jesse recanted his confession in a letter to his parents. Quote, I hope that y'all don't hate me because I did not do it. I cannot stand in here much longer. I will go crazy. Please try to get me out. I will die in here. End quote. The unknowing teen had just implicated himself in a crime he was nowhere close to the evening of May 5, 1993, taking down the two teens he did know when investigators spoke their names. The courts in Arkansas appointed all three teens to public defenders, and for Jesse Miss Kelly, his lead defender walked into the jailhouse, sure as rain that his client was guilty. Who confesses to a murder, one especially heinous as this? if they did not do it. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we finally close up the case of the West Memphis Three. Anger boils over in everyone who knows these three teens because what they are sure of is that none of them are capable of doing what they are being charged with. But out in the crowd, the killer may be sitting there, watching in awe, completely dumbfounded by the magnitude of it all. How the law never even looked in his direction. America watched as these three teens replaced the faces of the three eight-year-old boys who lost their lives. This case didn't just develop into a circus. It showed the world the flaw in the justice system and how an innocent man could go down for something they did not do. Placing fear into those who learn that no matter what they're said, their words could be twisted just enough to cost them their life. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of murder, mutilation, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Good evening, my true crime nerds. I am so happy to be back and so incredibly sorry for the turn of events that delayed this episode. 
I'm currently working to get myself back on the up side of things. So we will be taking one more break following this episode before coming back with an all new case that rocked America once again. A little bit of house cleaning before we get started. I just wanted to throw out a reminder that the design of the month is live at the merch store. So go pick yourself up a new tumbler, hydro flask, or coffee cup while supporting the show in the process. If you'd like to make a donation to the show, head over to the truecrimelibrarian.com and click that donate button. Any and all donations will be welcome and go directly into the show and improving the quality of the podcast and the YouTube channel. If you're not following me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, go do that now so that you can never miss an update about the show or the librarian. If you're dying to talk about the details of cases discussed and cases covered by the librarian, head over to Facebook and join the new discussion group to interact with other listeners about the cases covered or true crime cases happening in real time. And a little bit of fun with others who enjoy true crime just like you do. Last but not least, let's give some true crime nerd love to Miss Tanya Riggs, Carol Fulton Kennedy, Melissa Bennett, and last but not least, Kaylin Wallace. If you'd like to make it on the list of love for true crime nerds, all you have to do is review, recommend, or donate to the show. Make sure to use the hashtag TheTrueCrimeLibrarian so that I can see your recommendation and reviews. Enough of this, let's get to what you've all been waiting so very patiently for, the true crime. On June 7th of 1993, the teenagers surrounded by law enforcement, some with untraditional style firearms, walked into the courtroom of Judge David Burnett. Jesse Miss Kelly's attorneys pointed to his case were David Stenham and Greg Crow. Jesse's attorney, David Stenham, had immediately thought that Jesse was guilty, quoting, Of course, initially, my take on the situation was that anybody who would confess to such a crime obviously did it. However, as his attorneys started going over his confession, which you heard in episode two at the end, the last 34 minutes, is the tape confession of Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. And each time they went over his confession, it changed considerably. He was having a hard time remembering what he had just said just moments before, let alone months, you know, or days prior to the appointment of their lawyers. So eventually, all of these inconsistencies convinced his attorneys that they were simply trying to prepare Jesse to testify against his co-defendants and, and possibly make a plea bargain to keep him off of death row. Sindham ended up being much more than a court-appointed public defender for Jesse. He kind of took him on as a client after this. And while talking to the attorneys, the thing that blew this that blues in him away was Jesse had no idea what an attorney was or what a defense attorney job entailed. He was under the impression that they were very similar to detectives. And so every time they went over that confession, he was trying to remember it verbatim. And the inconsistencies didn't lie in just a few words here and there. There were entire time periods that changed. There were entire events 
of May 5th that were either completely left out, added, or moved around. Jesse could not keep his story to be what he had told Gitchell and Allen and Ridge when he confessed. Things were just not adding up for him. And it was it, his lawyers, were, they were quick to figure out Jesse didn't have the intelligence of, another, of what another teen his age would have. He showed no signs of understanding the severity of his charges other than he was never going to get to leave jail. He even asked his attorneys, and this is, this completely baffles me. He asked his attorney who Satin, S-A-T-I-N, the material, who Satin was. He had heard of the devil, but he had never heard of him being referred to as Satan, which is what he thought or how you thought you pronounced the word Satan. He was pronouncing it sat Satin, like the material. So, it was really troubling to know that we have someone here being accused of being a satanic killer, of being a part of a cult, of being a part of showing this occult activity that is very demonic-like, and he didn't even know what the word Satan stood for. He had no idea. And it's from this point, really, that Stenham went from doing as little as possible as he could for a monster who could be responsible for killing three innocent boys to fighting for Jesse's innocence. He, he switched gears almost immediately after sitting down and talking with his client because it was readily apparent, neon flashing light, sirens, whatever you want to call it, it was apparent that Jesse had no idea what he had told investigators he had no idea what the severity was. He had no idea what the consequences were going to be. And he had no idea what he admitted to. So Stenham was like, okay, we're going to throw out this whole getting him ready to confess and, and possibly earning him a plea deal to looking into cases that involved false confessions or coerced confessions and looking at similarities that were parallel to what Miss Kelly was going through. As you heard in the beginning of this episode, Jesse recanted his confession in a letter to his parents that was almost immediately following the confession you heard at the end of episode two, stating, I hope that y'all don't hate me because I did not do it. And he didn't. He had people saying he wasn't even in West Memphis at the time frame you're asking. Didn't matter. Jesse said he was. Jesse said, you know, that he saw Damien and Jason sexually uh, molesting these boys. He saw that they were hogtied with rope. He saw that, you know, they cut one of them boys in down around in the groin area. He said all these things that were very close to what actually happened. But when he was in there for five hours and the last 34 minutes was all that was taped, you can't help but wonder how many of those details did he learn in the four hours and 26 minutes that were not taped in that interrogation room that day. Now, Jason Baldwin, he was appointed Paul Ford and George Robin Wadley or Wadley. They saw a small teen who the only time he'd ever been in trouble with the law was he 
you know, broke some glass out of some cars being stored down in the uh, derelict shed, and he had shoplifted a bag of M&Ms from the store. He turned out to, what, what's funny about this and why I kind of giggle about his criminal history is because they painted a portrait that Jason Baldwin was one of the most vicious killers amongst the three who took part in the murders of these boys. He was the one that Jesse Miskelly said castrated Christopher Byers. We have this very lanky, redheaded, kind of dorky looking kid. And the prosecution and, and Jesse Miss Kelly are saying he he's the most vicious. I mean, he committed the most amounts of inflicting harm or pain into these boys. And I mean, there's at one point that Jesse even says that Jason is, you know, screwing one of them up fast. I, I mean, you look at his face. You can get online and Google what they look like. I will post pictures. You've seen pictures. You've had to of That face does, staring back at me does not represent a very vicious person. Looks can be very deceiving. I get that. I mean, look at Ted Bundy. He relied heavily on his looks to get him through. And it earned him a hell of a lot of trust from people that should never have trusted him in the first place. However, it, Jason's eyes don't change. In all of the time that his life was in front of a camera, that his life was being dissected, the person behind those eyes did not change. And it was a very innocent looking boy. How could he be capable of doing some of the most heinous acts to ever come across printed news up at this up to this point you know what i'm saying it's it things just don't look like they're adding together he didn't fit the profile of someone being capable of committing multiple murders and he sure as hell didn't appear mentally unstable a little backdrop on jason his mother was one that suffered from mental incapacities. She had severe, and I mean severe, depression prior to Jason's arrest. And I can only imagine what it magnitude to after the arrest. But he came from a home that mental instability was probable in, and he himself did not fit the, the norm of what we would call a mentally unstable person. Now we have Damian Eccles. He's up next. He was appointed Val Price. He was the chief public defender of Craighead County. And Scott Davidson was under Val Price. Ron Lax, a Memphis private investigator, he offered his services to the teens. And it was determined that he would work with Damian's attorney. And in turn, it would actually work for all of the defendants, all three boys. And it eventually got to the point where Lax was seeing Damien about once a week for nine months. Four days after Damien was arrested, he attempted suicide. His mother had brought him his antidepressant, something he was on prior to the murders as the several times he was under evaluation for psychiatric issues, it came out that he was severely depressed. And so Elevil or amitriptyline was prescribed to him. And he, you know, 
he had saved up four days worth of medication, which gave him roughly 12 pills. He ended up cheeking them, and on day four, he decided he had plenty. It was going to be enough medication to kill him. Instead, he ended up being taken to the local hospital where his stomach was pumped. Now, Ron Lax's assistant, Glory Shettles, soon learned that Damien's dive into religion was his way of finding a place in this world. And we kind of talked about that. We kind of dabbled on that when we went into Damien's history. And I said, you know, I, I felt that the reason he did what he did, the reason he looked at, at religions in the way that he did, is because he was a lost soul trying to figure out where he fit in. And Shettles, she came to the same conclusion. She also learned that the reason Damien dressed in black was because Deanna Holcomb, the girlfriend prior to Domini, told him he looked best in black. So he took her at face value and why, and black was added to his wardrobe exponentially to a point that that's pretty much all he owned. And wearing a trench coat, this was long before 1999, and we, you know, felt like people were hiding firearms under these big, long dust jackets, was something he thought was just cool at the time. And now in retrospect, if, if Damien's asked, you know, what he thinks about the trench coat thing, and he says he wishes he could go back and choose not to wear it. But at the time, for him, it was a piece of clothing he was comfortable in, and he felt like make, made him feel more cool, more popular. With everyone seeing a teen who worshipped the devil and terrorized his community and stealing the lives of three eight-year-old boys to sacrifice to a devil, they saw Damien. Or at least, that's what they were trained to see. Following the entering of all three of the boys' pleas, discoveries, search warrants, and locations were highly, highly debated. Public defenders for all three teens struggled to make heads or tails out of the pile of information that was being turned over from prosecution. This paper, okay, so can you imagine dropping every, all, you know, your books and your notebooks and your, your folders and stuff in the hallway and your papers scatter and you're trying to put it back into some ordinance and you just end up basically picking up the pile of disarrayed papers and heading off. This is what the defense attorneys were handed as far as the discovery and things like that went from prosecution. It was a jumbled pile of mess. And trying to put into order the way the prosecution's brain was thinking, virtually impossible. I mean, 2,000-page discovery. We see a 2,000-page discovery with Chris Watts, but in 1993, it's a rare occurrence to see a discovery of that size. All three sets of attorneys, they went to Judge Burnett and they tried to, to get him to rule that Prosecutor Fogelman clarify the things he was turning over. And Fogelman told Burnett, you know, that he was turning over everything that they had against the teens and that he felt it was more than enough of him and his offices for and for asked for Burnett to deny the defense's motions to have clarification 
over what was eventually dubbed the discovery mess. Guess what? Burnett agreed with prosecution and was like, you're on your own with this one. Search warrants were worse than the mess of paperwork sent to public defenders. Detective Ridge told Wadley, Jason's attorney, that the judge that signed off on the warrant, Judge Rainey, had went down to the station and helped detectives write the warrants in a manner that would give them appropriate cause and leave no doubt in Rainey granting these warrants to them. This was following the arrest of the boys. They needed to get inside their homes. They needed to see what they had before anybody had an opportunity to get rid of it or destroy it. And so the only problem was we have the confession of this teen who, whose story doesn't make sense. He says like eight times during his confession. And then I went home. Well, um, if you went home eight times and came back, I mean, I don't understand how he was able to tell more of the story after he went home. Well, circumstantial is basically all that confession was. It wasn't really enough to prove that there was a time limit on them needing to get into these homes. So the judge came down to them and was like, let's write this out in a manner that nobody will question why I signed it. In the vague, they needed to find blue, green, red, black, or purple fibers, something that was found in nearly every home in West Memphis, Memphis, or Marion, surrounding any suburb. Yeah, you, can, you can't find those colors in every home, right? Nothing in Jesse's confession mentioned that the three teens ever participated in occult activities. Judge Rady found these things concerning in Jesse's confession discrepancies that would have given doubt in whether a warrant would be issued. There are other issues was the term that, quote, cult materials. And when asked what that stood for, Ridge said, you know, at, quote, as a definition of cult material, as a cult would be a group and the cult materials would be any kind of groups with symbolism, writing, paraphernalia that would agree with that cult, end quote. Very vague, very, around, we're running around the damn bush here chasing our freaking tails, right? I mean, I can't even read it without there being some hesitation because it does not sound right in my head. When he was asked to clarify further, basically said books, reading materials, drawings, knives, anything of that nature. So virtually everything that a teenage boy would have in his room from, I mean, not everybody wrote, but you have music that, that stands for things, children. I mean, a lot of people out there, music speaks for them, right? Well, okay, so you, if you take into account their, mu their taste of music, that could be questionable, and it will be for these poor teens. Um, any drawings, any doodling that they do, well, find me one child that has never doodled, and I'm going to, you know, we're going to have to figure out what's wrong with this child. <laughs> You know, and, and knives, boys are naturally curious uh, of, of weapons, of knives, firearms, BB guns, things like that. So basically anything that you can find in a teenage boy's bedroom was what Ridge was uh, including into his 
cult paraphernalia. Makes a lot of sense, right? Judge Rainey eventually takes the stand and his testimony contradicts the testimony of Ridge saying, I had no participation in the preparation of the affidavit. I had no participation whatsoever. Well, you've got an officer saying we didn't have enough evidence to prove that, you know, of plausibility. So there was really no meat to this search warrant. And we needed it because we might find something in there that that pertained to this case and we need it quick since we're just arresting these boys so he he wouldn't have known i mean a person who has been on the job for 20 years for 30 years pretty much at any given point can probably tell you whether or not what you're presenting to a judge for a warrant would pass or fail. So it's not that that Ridge wasn't completely a dumbass and didn't know how to file a search warrant with the courts. He was, but he knew mm, what I have to write down doesn't really constitute for a search warrant to be issued. And for Judge Rainey to take the stand and say, hmm, I didn't help him. I don't know what he's talking about. Okay, then that means two, one of you or both of you are on stand committing perjury at this moment. Both of you are members of the law enforcement. Both of you are members of upholding the justice system. And one of you is lying. That, that's what I'm hearing because one saying one did one and one is saying the other did a different thing. Can we get on the same page here? Because this is highly confusing. However, he had no participation according to his claims and he approved the warrant due to, quote, close relationship between the alleged perpetrators. The fact that the evidence could possibly be removed or destroyed if it was not attempted to be gathered immediately, end quote. Judge Burnett said, Quote, it is the court's opinion and ruling that Judge Rainey was on very sound ground, end quote. Another fight that defense was presented with was to try Jesse and Jason as juveniles instead of adults. These two, Jesse was 17, Jason was 16, and the only one that was considered an adult was Damien, and there was no trying him as a juvenile. However, could they try Jesse and Jason? And had they done so, had they been trialed as a juvenile instead of an adult, we could have seen completely different sentences handed down to both of these teenagers. However, we know that that didn't occur. But that didn't stop the defense teams from submitting, you know, some meat to these claims. Well, I mean, with Jesse, you have to look. He's got minimal understanding of what is going on. He has he virtually no understanding of what is happening except for the fact that he's in jail and it's bad and he may never get out. He never passed minimum standardized testing, but Judge Burnett argued that he had learned, quote, street smarts, end quote, even though he was barely managing life since dropping out of high school. And we talk about, I mean, people have talked about this for ages. There's book smarts and there's common sense. And so what Judge Barnett is saying is that Jesse Miskilly has some common sense to him. He's not entirely dumb as his intelligence implies. In reality, I don't, I don't 
think Jesse had enough common sense to really grasp the severity of what was happening in his life. And I'm sure because of everything being so unknown and not understanding what is going on, that intensified his fear of, I'm never getting out of jail. Okay. Burnett also ordered that due to the seriousness of the crime, both Jesse and Jason would have to answer to the circuit court as an adult. End quote. These two would not be standing trial as a juvenile, which means they are eligible for some very serious adult sentencing. They are being charged with capital murder, not on one count, but on three counts. Okay, Justin Miss Kelly eventually has his dub down to first degree, but for Jason and Damien, it's it's capital murder that houses a maximum sentence of death by lethal injection. He's 16, and he is facing the fight for his life. Due to the media attention, the location of the trials would be play a huge part in the way they would play out. A large part of Jesse's confession had even been published in the Memphis Commercial Appeal and quoted repeatedly in other media outlets. Okay, so finding a jury in this mess, very hard to do without having bias. As a result of not being able to find a jury who's not biased on a, or know any part of this case, because like I said, from the moment these boys went missing, media was on top of this case, even intercepting information they should not have shared with the public. Stidham was fighting for Jesse's trial to be moved as far away from West Memphis as possible so that he had an opportunity for a fair trial. Pay attention to that word fair. Don't keep that in the forefront of your mind. Jesse's attorney was trying to get a motion filed so that any motions beyond this point would be sealed so the media could not be able to report on what was going on and further deterioration of the chances of a fair trial for any of the boys. All three teams submitted a request to move the trial to a different jurisdiction. And guess what? Stidham lost the ruling. I mean, because we know. I mean, I'm going to link a website into the description of this podcast and this YouTube video. If you are interested in, in knowing further about this trial, click on it and, uh, it's very nicely organized. You can click on the documents index tab and you are greeted with a glorious amount of information that has been made public about this case. It is a true crime nerd's dream, um, but it also is very overwhelming. So caution to that. If you do decide to follow the link, no, it's a rabbit hole that you'll spend the next three or four months in. It's It's got that much information in it. Jesse Miss Kelly would be tried in January in a very tiny town of Corning, and Burnett would preside the case. 
Jason and Damien's trial was moved to Jonesboro, which was the largest city within the district, and it would follow the conclusion of Jesse Miss Kelly's trial. Neither one of these is considered a win. Neither one of these are far enough away to offer these boys a fair trial. Okay. However, they're not in West Memphis, so that's a start, right? On August 4th, 1993, Jason and Damien entered their plea of not guilty. Judge Burnett had something to say in regards to the boys and their mental capacities, and this is highly important as well. It said, quote, I'm concerned with the possibility of a motion to seek mental examination and the inevitable delay of this case. If you don't request it within 30 days, you are waiving it. You're on notice that the court is drawing a deadline as far as that defense goes, end quote. Now, funny enough, because Burnett was very like, well, somebody's going to file the, the plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, right? Or maybe by reason of mental capacities, because we have Jesse Miss Kelly. None of the teenagers' defenses went with that strategy because they were all going on the fact that all three boys were innocent, not because of a mental illness, not because of a break in reality, not because they, you know, not for any other reason than the fact that they physically did not kill these boys. On December 30th of 1993, a teen that cooperated that Jesse, Miss Kelly, had told him that he, Jason, and Damien had, quote, sacrificed them little kids, end quote, told Ron Lax that the police had interviewed him for five hours to try and get him to back up Jesse's confession. When the teen would not give them the information they needed to back up his confession, they began yelling and screaming at him, claiming at one point that Gitchell grabbed his chin, got in his face, and intimidated him into saying what they needed. Eventually, they ended up with a quote of, quote, he was with Jason and Damien when they sacrificed them little kids, end quote. But when Lax talked to him, he received a different information. He received Jesse Miss Kelly had never said anything to him about the young boys, nor had anyone else. He had no knowledge whatsoever of these murders. You see this a lot with our witnesses that are going to come into the story. They talk to Gidgel and his team, and they completely support the fact that these three teens are anything but guilty, right? Or anything but innocent. So they have what they feel like are strong supporting structures to this case. However, when Ron Lax talks to him, it's a different answer. It's a different recollection. These people have a change in heart, is if, if you may. Why? Because these two, the difference between the two is the way they are questioned. It, it, that's my belief 100% is, is it's so intimidating under those lights. And, you know, you can, you, 
I don't, I'm not, don't get me wrong here. It's not what you see in the TV, but you can't help but feel like it's very dark and with a, you know, a century located, um, lighting system, not just, it does not feel very bright and it's very depressing and it's, it's meant to get you down. And so when you're questioned under that with some very determined men who wear a badge, who, who could throw you in jail, you're, you know, you're pretty sure you're going to say whatever it takes to make sure that you get to walk out of that room when you're done talking. However, Lax is questioning them in the comfort of their own place of their choice. He's not intimidating. He's allowing them to speak freely. He's not forcing them to mold their story into what fits the confession or what fits what they need in order to get a conviction. He just wants to know what they know. And he's getting a different answer. Things aren't adding up. The, the more we dig into the case, the, the worse it's going to get. And stick with me, guys, because this is going to be a long episode. But there are so many facts in this case that had I left them out, you would have been robbed of understanding it in its entirety. On June 8th of 1994, a knife had been FedExed to West Memphis. This was a knife that was given to the crew members of the HBO special Lost Paradise. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. And the knife came from none other than John Mark Byers. And okay, so pause. If you've seen this, if you've seen this documentary, can we just take a second to relish in the fact that John Mark is one of the most colorful characters to ever cross the screen? Yeah, we're, we're all in, that make, I mean, we're all in agreement to this. Okay, great. I'm not the only weirdo who thinks that this man is, you know, nothing more than a wannabe Shakespearean actor. <laughs> so anyways, John Mark, he gives his HBO crew member this knife. He claims that the knife was never used and was given as a Christmas gift to the crew member. When in reality, John Mark says, you know, I bought it to go deer hunting with when, and, you know, come deer season, I didn't go hunting for obvious reasons, you know, like the death of my son. And so he gave it to the crew members. This knife was about eight and three quarter inches long. It had blood located on the knife. An Arkansas crime lab was able to, to look at this blood and learned that it was consistent with Christopher Byers. Now, the sudden appearance of this knife was the most significant breakthrough since Jesse's confession, and it definitely puts John Mark Byers' innocence into question. Because you're already, I mean, you've already heard, okay, he was out with his older uh, stepson. They were looking for Christopher that night, and he looked all night. So he claims, you know, into the early morning hours and he walked not five feet away from where these boys were found and he never saw the boys, right? And you're thinking, how'd you, how'd you miss this, right? How, things don't add up, you know, between the stories. And then you see John Mark on TV and you're like, Phew, this guy has a character. It would not surprise me if he's the killer. So... You know, he fits what we would expect as far as a person capable of taking the lives of these boys. 
And now you've provided a knife to us that has blood on it, very consistent of Christopher Byers. The defense demands that John Mark be questioned about the knife and how the blood appeared on the knife uh, when John, when Mark Byers claimed that the knife had never been used. Well, John Mark says that the knife had been purchased, like I said, for deer hunting, but he did never get a chance to for obvious reasons. But he did remember using it to cut deer meat. And he said, well, maybe the blood came from cutting that, that raw deer meat. And they're like, no, it, the blood matches Christopher's. And John Mark was like, well, I don't understand how Christopher's blood would be on the knife. It doesn't make any sense. And so they asked John, you know, a very hard question. He, they said, did you have anything to do with the death of Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers? And John Mark denies having anything to do with the death of the boys. Please accept his statement and choose to not question him any further beyond that. This piece of evidence was the most profound thing discovered in the investigation up to this point, as everything has been circumstantial of he said, she said bullshit. Okay, we have a knife with one of the kids' blood on it. Why are we not looking into it any further? Kind of reminds me of Mr. Bojangles. He stumbles into this restaurant looking exactly like the detectives did after being in the bayou all day, and nothing came from it. The blood samples were... Nothing came from that. We don't know. You know, they didn't ever follow up again with, with Bojangles Chicken and the manager. We have several questions coming up in this case that should have answers for them. And to not have answers, you're providing a lot of doubt for a jury. Or at least I would say that's what you're doing. Then the blood evidence came back with DNA testing. And, and remember, it's still new in 1994. And it showed not only is this blood consistent with Christopher's, it's consistent with John Mark's. So we, we've got some more questions because John Mark is Christopher's adopted stepfather. How do they have the same blood? How is this blood consistent with both them? Other than the, was John Mark really Christopher's father? Had Melissa been sleeping with Christopher's dad, who was on his birth certificate, and John Mark at the time, and didn't really know whose child it was? I don't know. We've got a lot of questions. And you can ask them all day long. But I don't know the answers to them, because nobody ever figured that out. By the time this all comes to light, we're in the middle of Jesse and Miss Kelly on trial fighting for his life. On January 18, 1994, jury selection begins for Jesse's trial. 36 people have been questioned to panel a jury of 12. Seven women, five men, and two men as alternates were selected. These people had no reservations due to moral or religious reason to impose the death penalty if the defendant was found guilty. Here's the thing. We're working on a plea deal here. This, this jury selection is questionable as far as how they seated each member. 
the youngest juror, he's 23 years old, just five years older than the now 18-year-old Jesse Miss Kelly. Jesse spent his 18th birthday behind bars. It happened not even a month after his arrest. And now he's he's got a he's got someone damn near his age going to make a decision on whether he's going to spend the rest of his life behind bars or not. On January 26th of 1994, the small courtroom was about to see the biggest case cross its 31-year-old wooden floors ever. Two television cameras were allowed to be set up close to the jury box, but they were under very strict instructions to not film the jury for any reason. Opening arguments were presented. Terry and Pam Hobbs, Dana and Todd Moore, and Melissa and John Mark all sat in the spectator seats behind prosecution. Lead prosecutor John Fogelman and Brent Davis, who would play a crucial role in both trials later on, they were heading up the state's uh, prosecution team. Fogelman, he has this deep southern drawl as he recounts the night the boys went missing to the jurors. His drawl does not soften the description from the medical examiner's findings, transitioning to the help of the civilian detective Victoria Hutchinson and the information that she found out that would lead investigators to Jesse Miss Kelly. He urged them to focus on things in Miss Kelly's confession, saying it was information that only the killer or killers would know. He, he could tell them about the boys being sexually mutilated and in the manner that how all three boys were beating. These things, he urged, would lead them to convicting Jesse on all three counts of capital murder, one which the maximum sentence was death by lethal injection. Dan Stampham, one of Jesse's public defenders, it's now his turn in front of the jury to tell them, you know, let, let me tell you why he's not kind of guilty and then we will clarify this later. He stands up and he begins telling the very same jury who had heard all these awful details by Fogelman and he tells them of injustice. Not just the injustice of three eight-year-old boys who were kidnapped and brutally murdered and in the way that the West Memphis police chose to investigate the entire case. The public was demanding for a name and a face to put with this crime, so much so that Gitchell got behind his steam locomotive and prepared to railroad through the three lives of innocent teenagers. He attached their faces to a crime he knew could not go unsolved and politically if he did not solve this case it would be the end of his career as the community continued to demand for answers to questions that everyone had but the bed of robin hood hills offered very little answers to okay damien eccles the team they wanted to nail the crime to led jesse to the investigators they needed a messenger, someone to put Damien at the scene of the crime. Jesse was that person. He got caught up in the net of the far more vicious investigators. So they're chomping at the bits at this point. We need a name. We need a face. We have to solve this. This can't go cold. And we have a lot of he said that so-and-so. So let's just use that because the actual... You know, definitive evidence, not freaking there. 
right? The eyes of the jurors confirmed that Sten, what Stenham had feared. The biggest battle of this trial had already been lost. Now he had to jump to a far harder plan B. Jesse endured a type of psychological pressure that backed the teen into a corner so far he could not get out of. Most cannot see or understand confessing to a crime that they did not commit, and with Jesse's words of the confession selling them on the fact that Jesse was pressured into the confession was going to be extremely hard to sell. But it was the only chance the defense had at this point. Quote, they broke his will. They scared him beyond all measures. End quote. For two weeks, Jesse kept his eyes down for most of his trial, staying bent over, chewing his gum as the prosecutioner painted him as some vicious, demonic, support child murderer. Dana Moore and Melissa Byers took the stand to give their grief-stricken accounts of the night their sons disappeared. Sidham had so many questions for Melissa. What about the spanking Christopher received before his disappearance? Christopher had a spanking for riding down the middle of the road on his skateboard on his belly. And the reason John Mark had given him that, that spanking was to signify how dangerous his, his act really was and to put some seriousness to it. You know, the next thing they wanted to to ask is why hadn't Christopher taken his medication that day? Christopher was diagnosed with ADHD and at the time he was on Ritalin. However, he had not taken that day's dose as of yet when he went dis when he went missing. And they wanted to know why. And the next question they had for him what had for Melissa was had Christopher ever disappeared for hours at a time before May 5th, 1993? All of these very pertinent questions, right? The number of questions Stenham wanted to ask Melissa shrank in comparison to those he wanted to ask John Mark Byers. Because as, as Christopher's mother, she should have answers. But we have the stepfather and we have some very conflicting information and it makes you look like you did something you, you know, you're sitting here accusing these three teenagers for. One of Steinman's questions was, why, why did you enter the woods without a flashlight that night? Knowing that it's dark out, knowing that it's going to be extremely dark inside these woods, you still decided to enter them without any help from any light source. Why? What were you, what were you thinking you could see? And for John Mark, it was simple. It was, I, I didn't have one, right? Okay. Well, why had you left to go search, left the search to go home and change your clothes? Well, John Mark, according to him, he was wearing shorts and flip-flops. He went home to change into coveralls or overalls and boots so that when he went in through the forest, he wouldn't get his legs all tore up. Makes complete sense, Okay. If you want to go in there, I realize that there's some urgency, but at the same time, you're not going to be doing anybody any good if you become, you know, gravely injured. So I get going home and putting that on. I'm not going to hold that against John Mark. But the most important and question 
What about this mysterious bloodstained knife that John Mark had gifted to HBO crew members? Right? Doubt. Doubt. We've got to implant the doubt. That's, that's Steinman's job as the defense lawyer. Plant enough doubt that the jury can't say that, you know, there wasn't any to prove that he should be found innocent, right? The risk of accusing them of having more to do with their son's death and Michael and Stevie's disappearance would be so great that it could possibly drive that last nail into Jesse's coffin. And even though Steinman had all these questions, all very legitimate questions, very questions we're all sitting back going, why didn't you ask? is because he had to look at how damning that could be for his client. And since he works for his client and not for solving this case, you have to weigh the outcome. And as a lawyer, that looks to be one of the worst positions you could be in. Detective Brian Ridge was up on the stand and he breaks down into tears talking about how he was on his hands and knees searching for, through the 10 mile bayou for the boys. And the bicycles recovered from the water near the pipe bridge were wheeled into the courtroom for emphasis of what had occurred during the search for these boys and what it put it, the searchers through when they came across them. It, it Back in the Gabriel Fernandez case, the prosecutor did the same thing with the box that, that Gabriel was constantly locked in. He wheeled it into the courtroom and it gave the juries uh, just a small glimpse into what the child endured. Well, it's the same thing here, wheeling these bicycles in. You see that they are rusted and they're covered in dirty water and they've, you know, it, they, they get to see that this is what it did to two bicycles that were pulled from that same water. Imagine what it did to the boys who were pulled from the same water. Dr. Peretti took the stand following Detective Ridge and he handed the jurors a handful of photos. Each one of these showed the boys on cold metal slabs inside his office. The fact that Peretti couldn't nail down a time of death with all three boys was crucial because with Jesse Miss Kelly's confession and at his trial and in it and consequently into Jason and Damien's trial later, we have a wide array of times and nailing down when the death occurred could go far in proving whether or not Jesse's confession is true. We, you know, things, these things we are accustomed to knowing. We, we've, we've heard medical examiners time and time again give us a, a time of death. And that time of death is able to put the killer at the scene of the crime. Well, the same thing goes here. Your Emmy saying, I can't determine that because there was a dramatic change in temperature between the water the boys were in and the air they were lifted out of the water into and them being on the bank and it just interfered. And Peretti says, you know, determining time of death is more of a work of art. 
it's not entirely reliable. So even kind of putting his own profession into this questionable state, trying to say, I really can't nail down a timeline because if I don't give you the right one, it it could blow the state's case up in their face. So instead, I'm just not going to give you one. That's what I'm deducing from what he's saying. It's not a work of art. It's science. You look at the rate of deterioration. You look at, you know, lividity. You look at rigor. You look at, uh, you know, infestation of larvae and bugs. And, you know, you take into account where they were found, the temperature in which they were found. All of that is a science. It's not an accurate science, but you are handed each and every detail you needed in order to determine that time, that timeline. We're not asking you down to the freaking second when they were killed. We're asking you for, can you give us six hours, seven, seven hours, a time frame of seven hours from when these boys were murdered? And he didn't even do that. On cross, Stendham was after two very important things with Dr. Peretti, the medical examiner. He wanted to know, had the boys been choked and had the boys been sodomized? This is something we are going to hear play out in Damien and Jason's trial later. This is very important because you heard in Jesse's confession that you know, Damien choked the boys, choked the boys real good. And Jason was screwing them up the ass. Both of these are clearly evident in the words that Jesse says. There is no beating around the bush. He just comes out and says it. He doesn't have the, the capability to soften that blow of information. And Peretti testifies, you know... There's no evidence of choking on any of the boys in any of his findings. And he testifies that there was some discoloration in the anal tissue that does not directly mean that there was a, a rape that occurred. and But there was no lacerations other than the dilation of that tissue and the coloration. So, no, he could not say that the boys had been raped. Well, that's a little damning, but okay, we can still come from this because not, not every rape causes lacerations, right? Well, Inspector Gitchell, he gets up on the hot spot next, and he testifies that Jesse was very relaxed during his interview, and there was virtually no pressure from Gitchell or any of his officers or investigators. Well, bullshit. On the cross, Stendham asked if he noticed the inconsistencies in Jesse's story. And Gitchell says yes. And these differences are glaring. We, now, we know the kids didn't skip school that day because there are attendance records. There's actual records showing that all three eight-year-old boys were in attendance at school from the time school started until the time school let out at three o'clock. Guess who was also in school with an attendance record that day? Jason Baldwin. That's very glaring considering that Jesse said the boys skipped school that day and he figures they were killed around noon. Did y'all hear that? Did y'all hear that in that in that confession? Our timeline's not matching up, but okay, let's go on to the next one. 
Jesse says that at one point, all three boys are tied up with rope. There is no evidence from the medical examiner that the boys had been tied up with rope. However, there's no mention of rope in the Emmy's findings. The only thing that shows evident is they were tied up with their shoelaces. So, you know, the next question, did Getchell ever talk with Rich to see if he had questioned whether or not Jesse's story was real or fake? And Gitchell said, you know, Jesse's inaccuracies are his way of simply minimizing his involvement. And in the end, he just ended up confusing himself. Fogelman goes back on a recross. He's asked, you know, he asked Gitchell, quote, was there any evidence that would indicate that there had been some sort of bindings other than shoestrings, end quote. And Gitchell says, yes, I've seen these ME reports. Now, granted, there are things that are not released to the public ever. Great. Okay. Understood that. However, they released the information regarding the bindings with the shoestrings, and I don't understand why there would not be a release of information of showing injuries that were consistent with being tied up with a piece of rope. However, Gitchell said there was. Well, Stendham, he jumps up. He objects to, to speculation. However, Burnett overrules the objection and he lets Gitchell describe to the jury an injury that he remembered seeing on one of the boys. And he says that kind of injury is made by a rope. However, it is not found in the medical examiner's reports. I went through these things with fine tooth clips. I can see the words in my sleep. That's how many times I went back through and looked at these reports from the medical examiner because they play a huge role in both in both cases. Let's just put it there. Peretti's testimony for both trials are night and day, but his reports are black and white. And it does not, there's not one injury that I went, maybe that was like a rope burn. Not one. Up next was Miss Vicki Hutchinson, our civilian detective. She was on the stand following Gitchell. Stenham did object to Vicki being called to the stand because Fogelman had planned to ask her about the ESBAT, stating that the alleged meeting occurred after the murders and had even taken place. So the relevance to the trial was questionable. In the end, Burnett was going to allow Vicky to testify, and it was an unshocking ruling as he sides with the prosecution yet again. You know, looking back, and I can't look at 2,000 pages of discovery, and I don't know how many pages of testimony and trial transcripts, okay? But I don't think I saw one ruling in which the defense won. It seemed like every time a ruling had some some credibility, it was overruled by Burnett and nothing ever came from it. And this is infuriating because you're seeing a judge lean completely towards the prosecution when he himself is to remain unbiased until he hears both sides. Well, the longer this goes on, the days that we are into this trial, Burnett leans further and further to the prosecution. She ends up getting on the stand and she tells the jury that 
Damien had invited her to this Ed Esbat, which she learned about in reading one of these witch books she got from the library. She says she worked with the police playing detective because her son, Aaron Hutchinson, who plays a huge role behind the scenes and is on the witness list, but had he was never he was never called to the stand. Aaron was really good friends with the victims. And this is why Vicky's like, well, this is why I worked with them. And during her testimony, there was no true implication to Jesse being involved in the murders. Nothing she said really pertained to Jesse Miss Kelly. On the cross, the defense, they bring up her history and they're trying to damage her credibility is what they're doing. And so they ask her, you know, have you, have you been convicted of writing hot checks? She says yes. And then they ask her, you know, how did you become involved in this case? And she says it's because she was being questioned about some fraudulent credit card charges from her employer at the time. And then the next question was, has the reward money ever entered your mind? And Vicki says no. However, questioning done by the defense, talking to some of her neighbors, they state that Vicki mentioned the reward money on more than one occasion. One time, one neighbor recalls Vicki stating that the reward money would be split between Aaron and another boy. Another occasion, Vicki says now Aaron is getting all of the money. And this is what we're going to do with it. Start rattling off this list of stuff they're going to buy. And she says the reason he's getting all of this money is, is, quote, because he had seen the murders, end quote. The neighbor immediately knew that was not true because they can remember seeing Aaron in the trailer park on the evening of May 5th when the boys disappeared. Since we have no time of death, we really don't know when the murders occurred. And it's highly unlikely that as it got later into the evening that a child of eight years old would just be allowed out gallivanting around the neighborhood. So him being in the trailer park that, that evening of May 5th makes it highly unlikely that he actually seen his friends be murdered. Like I said, Aaron was on the witness list, but neither Fogelman or Stintam uh, calls him to the stand. Fogelman says, quote, I had some police officers that were absolutely convinced of his story, and I talked to him a couple times. The first time, I was a little bit believing him. The last time, I guess when he started talking about draining the blood into a bucket or whatever it was he said, it was so inconsistent and stuff that I got concerned. End quote. Stenham, he believes the boy was wildly unpredictable. And at this point, Aaron is telling Detective Bray he personally dismembered Christopher because a black man forced him to by holding a gun to Aaron's head. Just as important, Stenham was worried about any blowback that would come Aaron's way. Bullying, harassment, embarrassment, whatever. He was concerned with the child's safety, whether or not what the child actually said was true. And that was another reason the defense did not call Aaron to the stand. He was listed as a witness for both sets. 
Lisa Sigbickus from the State Crime Lab. She testified to secondary transfer of green polyester fibers. These are similar to a shirt that was found inside Damien's home and red rayon fibers that were found on a bathrobe in Jason's home. Remember when we were talking about search warrants and stuff just a little bit ago and I, I was talking about all the different color fibers? These two particular fibers were found on the boy's clothing from the crime scene. Now, how common is polyester? Well, I'm pretty sure you can take an article of clothing that you are wearing right now off your body and it was made with polyester. And if the item is green, you could have been at the scene of the crime because it would probably be very similar to the fibers removed from the boy's clothes. How about rayon? Rayon, not as common as polyester, but it still probably wouldn't be hard to find in your home. Something is made with rayon. Now, is that something red? Well, guess what? You could have been at the scene of the crime because those fibers would be very similar to those found at on the boy's clothes at the crime scene. Do you see where I'm getting at here? You know, they, they, they say these fibers are like finding a needle in a haystack. Really, I, I would probably compare it to finding hay in a haystack. <laughs> it showed me nothing. Really, honestly, it really didn't. The more I looked at these two pieces of evidence, the more I was like, I bet you could walk into any of those people involved in, in any part of this case and you could find a green polyester fiber and a red rayon fiber. I would be almost willing to bet everything I own on it. At the time, had you walked into any one of them, the people involved in this case, you could have found any of those fibers in their home if you looked hard enough. So it didn't show me anything except for the fact that Damien's family, someone owns a green polyester shirt and highly likely that Jason's mother's bathrobe was made with red rayon fiber. That's what it showed me. Now up to testimony was the different knots the boys were bound with. And Lisa, she testifies that Michael had a combination of square knots and half hitches. I am not going to choose to to be this, you know, knot expert. I'm really not. You know, I tie my shoes. To me, that's a knot. You know, you double knotted. That's a knot. I can tie fish in line. I'm not really sure what that's called, but I can do it. It's a different kind of knot. I really honestly could not tell you the difference between knots. I'm, and I'm willing to admit that I am not an expert in knot tying. However, this plays an important part of this case because when looking into this, you find that most people tie knots in a particular way, especially if they are taught how to to do a square knot or half hitch or figure eight or loops or double hitches, whatever. People, they get very comfortable with one style, two maybe. And so for the boys to exhibit different bindings, different knots in their bindings, we've got some question coming up. 
So like I said, Michael had a combination of square knots and half hitches. Stevie had a combination of half hitches, figure eights, and loops. And Christopher was tied with four double hitches. Fogelman claims that because there are different sets of knots, it indicates multiple killers. And to this, I certainly agree with you, Fogelman. I find that the different knots is showing us that we at least have two different perpetrators because we're seeing these half hitches, these double hitches, figure eights, square knots, loops, okay? Well, if if any of the, the people who killed these boys had, if they were men and they went through Boy Scout or if they were female and went through the Girl Scouts, learning these knot tyings is, is highly likely. So trying to tie one with a, a half double hitch and one with a figure eight, you're trying to maybe throw off the police when they do find them. And so maybe tying two different knots it is something you thought of, but tying two different knots that you're comfortable with tying doesn't, you know, it's not a stretch. It's not a reach. So, yeah, I agree. The, I mean, these the different types of knots are showing us we've got multiple perpetrators in this case. And never once did I say that I thought just one person was capable of committing this. I mean, they are. I mean, somebody out there could tie all differently. But it's not likely, not in a, a tense situation like this, are you going to pull out the book and be like, okay, how do I tie, you know, a square knot and try to tie a square knot when you have boys who were squirming and terrified and not really sitting still for you to accurately recreate a knot that you're unfamiliar with. I just don't see it possible. The state calls William Jones. This would be their star witness in the trial of Jesse Miss Kelly. He was a teen that had supported Vicki Hutchinson's testimony earlier that the defense was trying to discredit her. This linked Damien to the satanic cult Hutchinson described and to the murders. So his confession or his testimony is highly important. On a videotape the state possesses were Jones, and he is telling investigators that when Damien was drunk, he confessed to raping the three eight-year-old boys. Lax, the private eye working for the defense, he goes and speaks with Jones prior to him testifying, and Jones has a change of heart. He tells Lax he didn't like Damien, and so he falsely told his mother that Damien came to him and confessed. And Jones told Lax that he felt so bad about it that he planned to be called to the witness stand and to tell the truth. And the, that, that truth is that neither Damien or Jason had anything to do with committing these murders. He had used information from the papers and rumors in order to credit his story. Jones was not the only person that Lax had come across that was changing their story when it came to what they were going to testify to. And this pissed Fogelman off. He ended up requesting that an investigation be launched into Lax and what was happening as each and <laughs> each state witness he was talking to changing their story. What What is he saying that is making them 
change their mind or change the way the story is or to admit that, you know, there was some kind of, of intimidation that went on during the questioning at the West Memphis Police Department. The investigator of Intellects, he goes to Burnett and he says, you know what, from what I can tell, Lax is the only one found in this case that has not done something wrong. And at that moment, Burnett and, and Fogelman, they dropped the issue right then and there, like a freaking hot potato. Because this investigator is uncovering things they don't need to come to light, especially if if West Memphis is actually being found to be intimidating and, and coercing certain stories out of these witnesses. And maybe Fogelman's in behind it too, you know, going, but did you remember it this way? And with Burnett, like I said, we can already see what side he's taking. He did not re remain unbiased throughout the entirety of Jesse's trial, nor will he in Damien and Jason's trial. Stidham and his team, they're up next. Now prosecution has rested. And we're not going to go too much into the defense. And a lot of you are probably going to be like, why not? And it's because I want you to see what was presented against them. It's obvious that the case that was presented to fight for them was not strong enough to win. But if you see the case that was presented against them, it's my hope that you develop uh, a very your own opinion let's just go from there you don't take me at face value so I know what I believe and if I present you with everything I can to discredit me believing in what I do and yet you still come to the same conclusions we're both seeing some very glaring discrepancies okay so I'm only going to go over, a, you know, a witness or two for each trial. And for Jesse's trial, I want to go over Dr. Richard Offshe. He was the defense's star witness. He was a psychologist with a doctoral from Stanford specializing in interpersonal dynamics and most importantly, in police interrogations. Yeah, we're going to touch that hot spot. Prosecution, they fly off immediately. They have to. They have to prevent the jury from hearing testimonies about how Jesse Miss Kelly's confession may have possibly been coerced and, and somebody suggesting that it's their professional opinion that Jesse Miss Kelly is innocent. But here's the thing there, Fogelman. That's the defense's job. They have to bring people in on the witness stand that can show Jesse Miss Kelly is innocent, that can say these tactics were used and it would be under my professional experience that that's, you know, the very definition of a coerced confession. However, up Fogelman goes. However, Burnett does say, you know, I'm kind of curious to what Dr. Offshe has to say and but he agrees with the prosecution in the fact that implicating or implying that Jesse is innocent or that the West Memphis PD forced a confession out of him 
he, it didn't sit right with him and he didn't know if the jury really needed to, to hear that. So what happened next? Well, Dr. Offshe testifies in front of Burnett only without the jury, after which he will rule as to whether or not he's going to allow the jury to hear this. In the end, it is ruled that Dr. Offshe's opinion on whatever there were tactics being used to force a confession or misremembrance of the detainee, things like that, the defense had to stay away from questioning. So the whole point of Dr. Offshe is to, to provide some knowledge about what exactly goes into a coerced confession or forced confession. He, he's got some experience in this background. It's something he's studied profoundly and he comes from a highly accredited Stanford University. So surely he has, you know, an inkling or two of what the hell he's talking about, right? The jury's marched back in and they hear Dr. Offshe's opinion on questions and tactics that brought concern to him. And one of the big ones was offering Jesse multiple choice questions where each answers were designed to benefit the investigation no matter what answer Jesse chose. Offshe goes on to state that this is one of the biggest red flags in understanding coerced confessions or forced confessions because you're not giving him an opportunity to tell you what happened. You're giving him partial statements and he's to fill in the blank with only these options. And when you have somebody of, of Jesse's limited mental capacities, they don't see, you know, there's an option E, here's what really happened. They don't see that. And for anybody in a situation like that, you, you're highly, highly stressed. It's very intimidating whether, you know, they're playing good cop, bad cop or not. It's just, there's a lot to take into consideration. And thinking clearly is not something that's readily available with all of these environmental stressors, right? So, even providing a person who does have the capacity to know that there is another option and that's what really happened in that kind of setting would fail to see that until after they answered. So it doesn't look good. Let's just put it that way. It doesn't look good for the state. And you would think the defense hit something and, and drove in you know, that big railroad spike of, of doubt. However, on February 4th, 1994, closing arguments are given to the jury. One side pleads that the jury convict the Satan-worshipping baby killer on all three counts. The other side's fighting to save the life of an innocent man. They deliberate until February 5th, 1993. Seven women, five men come back with a verdict. Jesse keeps his head down as Judge Barnett reads his faith. In the death of Michael Moore, he is found guilty on first-degree murder. In the death of Stevie Branch, he is found guilty of second-degree murder. In the death of Christopher Byers, he is found guilty of second-degree murder. Jesse was offered a moment to say something to the courts. 
He simply replied, no. One juror wasn't surprised when Jesse Miss Kelly didn't take the stand in his own defense. He says, quote, I think the prosecuting attorney would have tore him apart and made him say anything. End quote. Isn't that ironically appropriate? Jesse was handed down the sentence of life plus 40 years, and he was only 18 years old. A week before Jason and Damien were set to stand trial, Jesse was taken out of prison and brought to Jonesboro. No one notified of Crow Stidham or Big Jesse that this was occurring. On February 17, 1994, Jesse was transferred at 5 p.m. and was taken to the law office of one of Prosecutor Davis's assistants. Remember, I told you the state had Prosecutor Fogelman and Davis. Davis plays in a, a crucial part in this in this for Jesse. At 6.15 p.m., Stidham learned from a local deputy prosecutor, and they had called him saying, do you know Jesse is being moved to rector and he's going to make a statement? And Stidham's like, um, no, what the hell are you talking about? He learns that Jesse was promised by a deputy who brought him to Rector from prison that his girlfriend was going to be brought to the jail he was staying in after he gave his statement. And for Jesse to see somebody like his girlfriend, that's all he really wants. That's, that's a familiar face and he's craving something to take his mind off of what is going on around him in prison. So he doesn't see that this is bribery. Stidham, he calls up and he complains there's improper contact going on with Jesse by the prosecution. Guess what? Burnett rules that no prosecutors had engaged in any misconduct. Yeah, that's what I said. None. It irritates the crap out of me with this case. Um, I'm just going to insert something really quick. If you saw Facebook and Instagram, this is going to be one of our longest um, episodes ever to air. Uh, and if I've lost most of you by by this point, I'm sorry. If I haven't lost you, I'm sorry. <laughs> but like I said in the beginning, there are so many details in this case, especially when it comes to the trials, that had I left something out, I f would feel like I'm robbing you and I can't do that. Had um, last week's episode gone on as planned, I could have cut this into four parts. Uh, but my health, you know, threw, threw a kink in that. So tonight we're just, we're going to talk until my voice completely goes out. But I just want to, I just want to take a minute and, and have you look back on Jesse Miss Kelly's trial. We have this teen who completely unaware of what it is he is going through, okay? And now he's been convicted. He's been handed life plus 40 years. There's no possibility of parole at this point for him. And he is basically held out a treat and is told, do what I want and you can have the treat. Guess what? His girlfriend did not know she was supposed to go see him in Rector. He was lied to, all because they needed to nail down his confession into a very tight, well-spun one 
that left no room for Jason and Damien's defense teams to poke holes in it. That's what it was. They just wanted to to tell him how to tell his story. On February 24th, 1994, jury selection for Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles' trial began. By the end of day one, they had only seated one member. By the end of day two, several potential jury members were dismissed because they admitted they could not hear the case impartially. And at the end of day three, a reporter was able to ask Damien who he thought that killed the boys, and he only had one word, buyers. February 28, 1994, opening arguments are heard. Vogelman starts by telling the juries of how what most of what they will hear would be what is called negative evidence and how it doesn't really show a connection to anybody. No fingerprints, no blood, but all of that is going to be explained later by the state. Jason's public defender, Paul Ford, started with Jason not being a troublemaker. He comes from a poor background. He was responsible for getting him and his brothers up and ready for school each morning. Quote, Jason was arrested for the murders only because the police had done a sloppy investigation, end quote. As there is no solid evidence pointing to anyone, Damien's lawyer Val Price echoed Ford with the police's ineptitude claiming detectives developed, quote, Damien Eccles' tunnel vision, end quote. Well, I'll be honest with you. He's not the all-American boy. He's kind of weird. He's not the same as maybe you and I might be. That'll be negative. But I think you'll also see there's simply no evidence that he murdered these three kids. As witnesses were beginning to be called, it almost mimicked the Jesse Miss Kelly trial. Pam Hobbs and Dana Moore got up on the stand and described the last moment they had saw their sons. Melissa Byers talked about John Mark seeing Christopher riding in the street on his belly and the spanking that came out of that. A noticeable difference between this trial and Jesse's was a mutual witness who had said he had seen three kids going into Robin Hood Hills in Jesse's trial. And this is to corroborate Jesse's confession because Jesse says there's only three eight-year-old boys that went into the woods that day with Damien and Jason and Jesse. However, now that we're at Jason and Damien's trial, he doesn't have to cooperate some kind of confession, and he testifies to seeing four boys go into the woods that afternoon. Detective Allen, he gets up and testifies at Jesse's trial that there was virtually no blood found at the crime scene. Yet here we are at Jason and Damien's, and he's saying there was a lot of blood in the water where Michael, Michael's body was found. There is actual police footage of Detective Allen in the 10 Mile Bayou that plays in Paradise Lost in the very beginning. And nowhere in that video, it was shot with 1993 technology. It is a VCR tape. It had probably been dubbed digitally at this point because I watched it on streaming, but it doesn't matter. It, it's color. It's not the best quality. We're not looking at 1080p or 4K or 8K. We're, we're looking at some grainy footage, but it's still clear enough for you to see that that water was anything but bloody. 
But yet he gets on the stand and he says there was so much blood found in the water around Michael's body. Paul Four, he ends up asking Detective Ridge to describe how police handled the evidence when they did find the bodies. And Ridge explains that since the clothing and shoes were wet, they had to be dry before they could be sent to the crime lab. So what they did is they placed the wet clothing inside a used paper grocery sack. Yes, I said used. For all of our true crime nerds out there, they are cringing with this, and we know why. Then they were transported to Inspector Gitchell's office, where they were taken from the grocery sack, spread out on his floor, and allowed to dry overnight, unattended, before they were rebagged into the same used grocery bags and taken to the crime lab. Are we seeing an issue, a problem with this? We talk about the fibers in Jesse's trial, and those happen by secondary transfer, is, is what the crime lab technician says. So what, what that means is, even though it wasn't Damien's green polyester shirt, Damien was still able to pick the fiber up at home, take it with him to the crime scene, and it transferred in onto the clothing of one of the boys, right? Okay, we're placing these wet items of clothing in used grocery sack. So what does that tell me? There's possible contamination of that evidence already because we cannot determine whether the inside of that sack was completely untouched by any other evidence. No fibers, no hairs, nothing. Then it was taken to Gitchell's office, laid out on the floor, again, where cross-contamination can happen, secondary transfer of fibers can happen, and allowed to dry overnight unattended, where we have no idea what creature or human was allowed to tamper with. So we're going off the fact that everything found on these article of clothing is 100% property of whoever killed these boys, right? Well, wrong. We have contamination. We have multiple points of contamination of this evidence. None of this, once that became light to the judge, should have been admissible into court. None of that. Because there is no guarantee that cross-contamination did not happen. We talk about walking into a crime scene and realizing a person is dead and you are to not touch anything and you are to take the exact same steps backwards out of that room. If you walk in and you take two steps, you better move that front foot back to where it touched prior to you walking into the room because you don't want to contaminate that crime scene because anything taken from it at that point is inadmissible in court. Well, we have contamination like crazy on just these articles of evidence. We're having a hard time here. And so there's some questions raised. And Damien's attorney, he gets up and he asks Ridge about two sticks that had been marked at the time of the crime, at the time the boys were found, as evidence. However, they didn't go back and take the sticks from Robin Hood Hills until two months later. 
what are we looking at? Again, cross-contamination. Can we verify that was the exact same stick you marked as evidence on May 5th when you're not out there again until what, July? So Price asked him, you know, you didn't, you did not take that stick into evidence at the time that y'all recovered the bodies. Ridge is like, no, sir, I didn't take the stick into evidence until the statement of Jesse Miss Kelly. And at that point, Price just booms into the courtroom. He moves to Judge Barnett and he immediately moves for a mistrial. Why? Because Ridge offered or blurted out the fact that Jesse Miss Kelly gave a confession. And that was not something needed to answer the question that Price had asked. And Price said to the judge, you know, this, these are my grounds for mistrial and the whole purpose for our trial being severed from Miss Kelly's in the first freaking place was the confession that Jesse Miss Kelly gave. That's the entire reason for the severance of the two trials because Jason and Damien are being trialed together and they, they weren't afforded the opportunity to sever the trials. Okay. Well, Burnett, he denies Price's motion immediately, saying that Ridge should not have blurted out what he did. But that was not good enough reason for a mistrial. And the defense at this point, I commend them 100% because any point where they felt like there was some iffy play being made by prosecution or the witnesses or they just they looked for everything and they took advantage as best they could with every little thing that that could work in their favor however Burnett is already swayed to Fogelman and so like I said he denies the motion he you know probably reprimanded Ridge and was like you can't say that and stricken the record and the jury was told you know not to take that into account damage was done i you know it baffles me when the judge gets up there and tells the jury that they are to dismiss dismiss what they heard and, and it wasn't to be taken into account when they went back for deliberations because that's like telling a teenager no you can't go hang out with your friends what are they gonna do they're gonna sneak out and go do it anyways right well same concept with a juror. How do you know that little, that doesn't plant this seed and that by the time deliberations occur, you have this big, ugly Venus by trap, you know, going on up there going, pay attention to me. Anyways, so, I mean, the damage was done. You can't guarantee that the jury's not going to go back there and use that piece of information, but whatever. Ford, once he sees that Price got no traction, he still has to try. They're two different defendants. They have two different teams. So Ford gets up, makes the exact same motion. But again, Burnett makes himself very clear, quote, there isn't a soul up on that jury or in this court room that doesn't know Mr. Miss Kelly gave a statement, end quote. And he's right. We talk about how this was covered, you know, exponentially in the media, not a, not a person in the southeastern region that didn't know that Jesse Miss Kelly gave a confession. You'd be hard-pressed to find one anywhere close to Arkansas. Both sides cleared that Burnett was not going to allow a mistrial. They moved on. Price moved on to something burning in all of our minds since hearing it. 
And Ridge is the exact person we need to talk to about this. What is the date you sent the blood scrapings off to the crime lab to be analyzed from the Bojangles Chicken restaurant? Ridge says they were never sent. Price very questionably asks they were never sent. And Ridge says that's correct. And so Price is like, well, where are the blood samples at this time? And Ridge is like, oh, I don't know, sir. They're lost. They're lost? Yeah, I lost them. That's exactly what Ridge says when he gets up on the stand. And I'm baffled by his admission because the analysis of these samples were capable of changing this case. Mr. Bojangles, the infamous unknown black male who walked into the Bojangles chicken restaurant that night, appearing similar to the way detectives did after they had spent the entire afternoon in the bayou. He was covered in mud. He was covered in blood. He left behind very conclusive evidence. And this entire event is completely 100% mishandled. There's no investigation due to the 911 call not being distributed with any kind of urgency. The collected evidence, it's lost. Nobody gave a crap. Nobody tried to figure out what happened to it. They're just like, oh, I don't know. It's gone. There was no true follow-up to what happened either. Yes, Ridge went out after being in the bayou all day and finding the boys, and he still talked to the manager. However, there was no follow-up. But here's another thing. The Emmys report notes finding a, quote, negroid hair, end quote, in the sheet that Christopher Byers was wrapped up in and removed from Robin Hood Hills. A resident was later questioned by Ridge and told that some black man had been seen going into the woods. We have several people saying that, that there was a black male suspect that they had watched go into the woods that had come into Bojangles. Whether or not they're the same person, that's not ever clarified. However, we still have reports of an African-American man being suspicious. Other than, you know, when you're covered in mud and blood, are you anything but suspicious? So we have all these reports, but nothing ever comes from that. As a matter of fact, to this day, we have no idea who that man is that walked into Bojangles restaurant that night covered in mud and blood and disoriented with a blue cast-like device on his arm that had white Velcro. Okay? Who was he? We'll never know. Because... Any evidence that could still be there is no longer there. First of all, Bojangles Chicken Restaurant, it's not there anymore. Second of all, if you tried, even if it was still there, if you tried to go and take scrapings from that wall now, we're looking at damn near 30 years later. You're not going to get anything. Especially if they, you know, clean their restrooms like they're supposed to, being a fast food facility. <laughs> we know that's not true. There was no... There was no urgency there was no there just wasn't enough to force investigators to to really pay attention to this call that came in on the very evening that three eight-year-old boys went missing and it it baffles me and it pisses me off that it was mishandled from the moment the call came in had that officer who responded to the call got the out of her car and went in we could be looking at a totally different case today Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly could be 
boys who grew up in West Memphis and watched this completely chaotic trial play out on television with the rest of us in America. But instead, she, she couldn't be bothered to get out of her car. Then the next day, when Ridge and Alan show up, eh, we'll take some scrapings, but I might have accidentally dropped them out of my pocket getting into the car. You know, there's no, nobody took care of this in an appropriate manner, and it's, it's, it just pisses you off. The more you look at this, the more it does. You just, you know what? We could figure out who Mr. Bojangles is, and he could have nothing to do with this trial. That's highly likely, but still give us an opportunity to determine, you know, whether or not this person really did have something to do with this crime, because it's highly likely that he came in off the freeway, he hurt these boys, and then he disappeared into the night. There was a note made on Ridge's note stating that a neighbor had recollected seeing a black man going into the woods. Gitchell made a note on that note stating, quote, it has been mentioned that during cult activities, some members blacken their face, end quote. This is important, especially for the defense and, and Price. He reads this note off of this piece of paper to the jury to show how soon in the investigation West Memphis PD were mentioning, quote, cult activity, basically stating they were already on a witch hunt from the beginning. Fogelman, he jumps up, he objects, and both sides approach the bench. He wants to know kind of where Price was going with his questioning. Price tells him, you know, this is the direction I'm going. And he decides, yeah, I'm going to withdraw my objection, figuring out that if he opens this can of worms, we're free to ask whatever evidence he has that would, you know, substantiate the cult-related activities. Well, Ford, he's next. He's like, whoa, wait a second. He's objecting to keep the mention of cult activity from happening unless the person or person or persons with, with whichever side can demonstrate beforehand factual basis for this line of questioning. And, you know, Price fights hard to allow this whole cult-related activity to be mentioned because he wants to point out to the jury how early in the investigation West Memphis PD starts zeroing in on cult-related activity. And with this kind of focus, they never gave any other plausible activity half a second to even be investigated. So here we are. We've got two defense teams. They're requesting two different things. Fulgerman's like, hey, I don't care either way. Whatever. It's at this point that Price and Ford both request to sever Jason and Damien's trial as they have two different strategies going on. Price points out, you know, we've got a 2,000-page discovery from the state claiming cult-related killings. And Burnett's quick to go, <laughs> that doesn't mean they have to prove motive. In the end, Price and Ford don't walk away with a damn thing other than Price is eligible to continue his line of questioning to get to his point. Up on the stand next is Dr. Peretti, and he's going to get up and talk about the boys and their medical examiner's reports. Here's the thing. We're going to DV off for just a second. 
On November 17, 1993, divers enter the water in a lake that is directly behind Jason's trailer park. This is on a hunch from Fogelman, and he's thinking, where's, you know, where's the best place to hide a murder weapon? Well, we have this body of water behind Jason and Damien's trailer park. Let's check out what's in there. And here's the other thing. They have virtually nothing tying Jason Baldwin to this crime. And so why not send divers into the water? Maybe we'll get lucky. And down they went looking for a murder weapon. And it's in within a short time when they resurfaced with a nine inch survival knife that had a jagged blade. And according to Deanna Holcomb, Damien's girlfriend prior to meeting Jerry Driver, claims that Damien carried a similar one to that sometimes. Fogelman describes this entire event a coincidence as Christopher had wounds consistent with a knife with one serrated edge. Want more coincidence? The knife was found directly behind Jason's trailer. How did Fogelman get this lucky? It's like being dealt 21 every hand of blackjack, right? Finding the murder weapon and tying your third perpetrator all at one time can't beat those odds. That's like the royal flesh in Texas Hold'em. Now, let's put Peretti on the stand so he can confirm just how lucky Fogelman's find really is. So Peretti gets up and he confirms that, Jace, that Christopher's injuries were consistent with the serrated portion of the knife recovered from the lake. We're going to call it the knife from the lake because that's what it's dubbed throughout this entire case. On cross, Ford got up and talks to Peretti and you, can you clarify a little bit further into Christopher's injuries? Could they have come from any knife with a serrated edge? And Peretti says, yeah. Well, Damien's lawyer, he's got some questions. And he gets up and he hands Pretty what is dubbed the John Mark Byers knife, the one HBO was gifted. And Peretti confirms that that knife was also capable of creating Christopher's wounds, especially some of the smaller serrated wounds. We've got two knives that can be plausible murder weapons, not just the one found in the lake behind Jason's home. So, Prosecution Davis, he gets up and he turns some questioning to Michael Moore. Let me go ahead and issue a warning right here. The testimony that is going to be read in the next four to eight minutes will be on the injuries of the boys and may be too graphic for some of you. If you feel like this is not some information you want to hear, I encourage you to go ahead and skip forward a little bit and um, just avoid this because it's going to, it, it's not going to be, I'm not going to be gory with it. We're not going to, we're not, you know, trying to turn anybody's stomach here, but there's no way that you can understand severity of any crime without knowing some of the details. And so that's why I issue this warning because if it's not for you, just skip forward. Michael's body had multiple skull fractures, and this resulted in his entire brain being bruised. His entire brain was bruised from the amount of blows he took to his head. He also had some bruising behind his ears, and this type of bruising is typically seen by someone holding on to the ears, pulling and pushing. More 
Precisely, it's an injury seen on those forced to perform oral sex. Water was found on the inside of Michael's lungs, indicating that he was still breathing when his body went into the water. Questioning turns to Stevie Branch, and Peretti testifies to, quote, multiple irregular and gouging type cutting wounds, end quote, on his face, caused by an object such as a knife, a piece of glass, or virtually any sharp object. An important note by Peretti was, in the forehead region, we have an abrasion or scrape that left a pattern. And inside that pattern, you can see a dome shape. This type of injury is typically seen with belt marks. So on his forehead, it looks like that Stevie took a belt to the forehead. Stevie also presented with the very same ear injuries as Michael. And Stevie suffered from a massive blow to the back of his head. Quote, the base of the skull, the back of the skull, showed a three and a half inch fracture, which had multiple extension fractures, end quote. Peretti compared this to dropping an egg, and the cracking that happens as a result is kind of what the back of Stevie's head looked like. Like Michael, Stevie was also alive when he entered the water as he had water on his lungs as well. Finally, questioning turns to Christopher. Christopher seemed to bore the brunt of the injuries. He had a fractured skull like Michael and Stevie, but he also had an additional fracture that the other two didn't. There was a quarter inch hole literally punched out of his skull just above where the skull connected to the top of the spine. And Peretti says, quote, something had been literally punched into the brain, end quote. Christopher suffered from neck injuries, genital and anal injuries, right leg injuries, left leg injuries, back injuries, right and left arm injuries. Christopher had a black eye and a facial injury with an quote, appearance of like the stud of a buckle, end quote. Christopher's genital injuries were anti-mortem, meaning this poor child was alive when his murderer castrated his testicles and degloved the skin on the shaft of his penis. The jury was showed a photograph of the injury in which Peretti pointed out the skinning with gouging wounds and finally, where the scrotum and testes should have been. Oddly enough, none of the boys had mosquito bites on their bodies. This is highly strange. Because when you talk to volunteer researchers from the night of May 5th, they commented on how thick the flying bugs were that night in Robin Hood Hills. And you, you, they didn't make it very far into it before they were retreating just unable because they were just being attacked with every step. So for these three boys to have been in Robin Hood Hills the night of May 5th and not have one mosquito bite, there's some questions. Where were they? Because they weren't, doesn't sound like they were in Robin Hood Hills that night.
The way a medical investigation works is he issues what's called a cause of death sheet, and it's distributed to prosecution, investigators, coroners, and it has a short description of how the, the victim died. So, you know, with a heart attack, it says heart attack due to coronary heart disease. However, with Michael, Stephen, Christopher, he simply listed a cause of death and went no further in a description due to the amount of media attention this case was receiving from the beginning. He was trying to keep things from being revealed to the media that shouldn't be. And for Lax, a private investigator, he's amazed at how many deviations from the normal procedure had occurred during this case. And this is just another one. Ford gets up on the cross and he focuses on a couple things that were mentioned in Miss Kelly's confession, something that had yet to be mentioned during this trial, which was shocking as it is the foundation for the state's case. And he asks, was there evidence of strangulation? We saw this question with Jesse Miss Kelly's defense. And Peretti says, no, there, there's no evidence of choking. And Ford asks, had the boys been sodomized? And, and Peretti says, no. Here's another thing. What about weapons to beat the boys in the head? Could it be any number of things? The cuts, any number of serrated knives? And Peretti says, there's possibilities of hundreds of different things and serrated knives that could have caused these very same injuries. Next up, Ford wants to talk about the skill needed for the castration. This is a skill that requires precision to perform. And Peretti said it would take him some time to do the very same thing. And, and Ford's like, longer than five minutes? Peretti said, yeah, it would be. And he said, would it be inside the comfort of your lap? And Peretti said, yes, with the aid of my scalpel. And so Ford's like, well, what about if it was in the dark? And Peretti said, well, that would be even more difficult. And Ford goes, what if we moved it into the water and in the dark? And Peretti said, that would create even more difficulty and prolonging the, the time it would take for him to perform the castration and skinning. And so Ford takes it one step further and says, what about in the water, in the dark, and with mosquitoes flying all around? Pretty agrees at this point, it would become much more difficult to perform this kind of, of injury. The amount of blood loss Christopher suffered as a result of this injury is a great deal because when he was opened during his autopsy, his internal organs were very pale. And this meant that he lost almost nearly his entire blood volume. And it would be very difficult for that amount of blood to be cleaned up anywhere. And especially here where it would have a lot of time to be able to soak into the ground below, cleaning up would be basically impossible. The fact that we we see little to no blood found at the crime scene, it's highly unlikely that this is actually a crime scene, okay? Five liters of blood is what a typical human body holds. Five liters. So take your two liter bottle of soda that's on your counter and 
put another one and a half another one. That's how much blood you have in your body. If you spill two and a half, two liters bottle of soda out onto your kitchen floor, how long is that going to take you to clean that up? Now think about it if it had start to become jelly-like during the process. It would take even longer, right? Well, if it's on your carpet, it's sinking into your carpet, right? Cleaning that up, virtually impossible. Your carpet's ruined. Pull it all. Time for mama to get some new carpet in her house. Same concept with blood, only it's worse because it's red. And red doesn't come out of shit at all. So cleaning it up in... in investigators and searchers who walk through that forest shoulder to shoulder the morning after the boys disappeared, you would have been to easily identify that something happened here and I need to go find somebody of authority. But none of that was seen in Robin Hood Hills, not on the bank, not in the water, nothing. The next thing that defense wanted to do is nail down a time of death and the reason being is if Peretti can put a time frame, we might can prove that Jesse Miss Kelly's confession, not entirely true, right? And considering that, that both Price and Ford know that's the foundation of the state's trial, we've got to discredit it. So let's let's beat the bull to the punch. So he asked Peretti to you know, is there any way he could give an approximate time of death that would show whether, and like I say, it would show whether or not Jesse's confession is true. And in Jesse's trial, he said it was an art form, one that could not have occurred for this case. But he gets up on the stand in Damien Jason's trial and he shocks the entire courtroom when he comes back and he says that he would say the time of death occurred between 1 a.m. and 5 or 7 a.m. on the morning of May 6th. The boys were alive long after Jesse Miss Kelly said they were killed. Being held somewhere else, might I add, with, with searchers being in that area in, in the way they were that night, there's no way those three boys would have been in Robin Hood Hills alive and not been found. Randy, Christopher's older brother, got close to that very pipe bridge where the boys' bikes were found and the boys' bodies were found very close to. And he saw nothing. There was no one. Two and two is not equal in four, right? We've, we've got too many different stories coming from our witnesses. So let's ask Pretty, you know, what, what did you use in order to come up with this determination? And he says, you know, I looked at the temperature of the air. I looked at the temperature of the water, the time the boys went missing, the time the boys were found, their cause of death. And this is what I deduced. I even took this to two other doctors who also looked at all of these things and agreed that it was very plausible that between 1 a.m. and 5 and 7 a.m. were when these boys were killed. So they were alive during these searches. Where were they kept? Since there's no blood, were they killed somewhere else and then brought to the, to the woods? And finally, who had the opportunity to be with them during this time? 
These are huge questions now that we have this time of death timeline. Well, just now, Prosecutor Fogelman, he's pissed. And he immediately takes steps to discredit the medical examiner, saying, quote, if you rely on Dr. Peretti for a time of death opinion, it's a mistake, end quote. Final questioning on the recross examination when prosecution got to ask questions after the defense, he was asked if it was possible for the water to have washed away all of the sperm DNA evidence. He said, yes, it's possible. And they said, is it possible for there to be rape without laceration injury to the anus? And he says, yeah, there is. So what they're saying is just because they don't exhibit what is tech, you know, found nine times out of 10 does not mean that's not what occurred. Whatever. So the state, their star witness for this case takes the stand next, Mr. Michael Carson. He was 16 years old at the time, and he came forward after being bunked with Jason in jail as Jason awaited trial. And so the state asked Michael, you know, what is it that you know? And he says, quote, he told me how he dismembered the kids. He sucked the blood from the penis and scrotum and put the balls in his mouth, end quote. Crudely, might I add, because Michael didn't sugarcoat anything, nothing. So why are, why are you coming forward now? Michael says because I saw the family on TV and saw how brokenhearted they were about their children being missing. And I have a soft heart and I, I couldn't take it. End quote. That's their star witness. Another child who had been in trouble on multiple offenses, who was also sitting in jail, became highly creditable. Detective Sergeant Mike Allen, he takes the stand after Michael Carson. He's answering questions regarding the knife from the lake. Detective Allen showed the jury on a map as to where the knife was found in the lake in comparison to where Jason's trailer was in the trailer park. This is important in implicating Jason to some piece of evidence in this freaking case because as of right now, really honestly, Jason's just there because he knew Damien. On cross, Ford wants to clarify. He says, quote, are you telling this jury that the knife is, that that knife is the murder weapon? Is that what you're telling this jury? And Alan, no, sir, I'm not telling the jury that. But that's exactly what it sounds like he is saying, right? The state put him on the stand. They asked him questions in regard to where the knife was found in relation to where Jason lived. I mean, yes, Peretti says it's possible that knife created some of the injuries found on Christopher. But it's also possible that the John Mark Byers knife is the knife that created the injuries found on Christopher. So it, does that definitively tell me that's the murder weapon? No. But are you going to tell me that's what it's saying? That sure sounds like what you're saying. Detective Brian Ridge, he's up next. Damien's lawyer, Price, he decides he's going to question Ridge about the John Mark Byers knife. He, you know, the weapon that could be directly linked to at least one family of the victims. And the interview with Byers that followed the discovery of the blood. Fogelman snaps up quick. He throws his chair and objects to the questioning. Prosecution didn't want the jury to hear that within the last six weeks, 
They had Mirandized and questioned him about the murders, an enlightenment that could make the jury see John Mark Byers as a suspect. This line of questioning never happens because how dare anyone imply that there is any other suspect out there but these three boys. Inspector Gitchell, he's on the stand next, and he confirms that John Mark Byers was not a suspect, tearing down the line of questioning that Price was going to do with Ridge. The reading of John Mark Byers' rights was just cautious on West Memphis PD's part. Damien's lawyer, he asked on cross about, you know, if the detectives had been, quote, trying to determine whether or not Mark Byers was involved in the homicide, end quote. And Gitchell agreed. He, he said, yes, we're trying to, you know, we tried to determine that. And so, you know, Price is like, so at the time, you still had a question as to whether or not there might be other parties involved in this homicide other than the three people charged. And Gitchell says no. Gitchell had once answered a reporter on whether he was sure on sure on who it was that committed this crime in a scale of 1 out of 10, and he responded with an 11. This is before arrests were made, and Gitchell is already confirming how confident he is that he knows who committed this crime. Evidence collected by West Memphis PD showed that Byers had been a suspect. However, Burnett was not going to allow that evidence into his courtroom. Burnett denied the defense a chance to question Christopher Morgan, the one who confessed to the crimes out in California, under, this, the, under the thing of why would his testimony be relevant? And why wouldn't his testimony be relevant? He confessed to these murders, whether it was under the same circumstances that Jesse did or not. He did confess. He knew all three victims. He left West Memphis a week after these murders occurred. Let's reiterate the fact that he confessed. What do you mean? What's its relevance? In the end, Burnett wins. You know, they're not allowed to ask Christopher Morgan anything, and they move on. Burnett does tell them, you know, gentlemen, this is getting absurd. I mean, I'm not going to let you drag in every possible suspect in this case, unless you have something to tie those persons to some event in this case, end quote. His decision was made. You know, you're not talking to Chris Morgan. Well, how about the audio from his interview? How about that? Is that not enough? How about the the transcriptions from his polygraph test? It showed deception. We're not going to allow that. There are several pieces in this whole damn thing that just irritate the crap out of me because it was like, yeah, you have something to provide doubt, but no, you can't present it to the court. That's. I feel like that's Every corner we come to, that's the answer. So if we look at the prosecution's case thus far, it's weak. It's built on questionable confession yet to be talked of during the trial. And its major pillars were simply circumstantial. It's going to crumble 
with the slightest breeze. You know, they have the knife from the lake, not tying anyone to it per se, but they are going to kind of indirectly say that it does implicate Jason. They find these fibers that are similar to the ones found inside Damien and Jason's house. Again, I could go into your house and probably find the same things. There's nothing presented in their case that directly ties these two teenagers to this crime. Nothing. And it's also at this point that Burnett decides to ask for clarification on what an occult is. And they ask him, you know, do you want the Webster's definition of an occult? And he says yes. And they're like, matters regarded as involving the action or influence of supernatural or supernormal powers or some secret knowledge of them. I'd still, honestly, he would, in my opinion, he's looking at that going, and what does that mean in English? Because the first 800 times I've read this definition, I'm still going, and what does that mean in English per se? We say this is some kind of a cult. That's the motive here for the state, right? These boys, they're out worshiping Satan and if they want to worship the devil, that's their own prerogative. I mean, our country was found on the fact that we wanted religious freedom and, and be able to practice the religion we believe in. We don't have to like it, what other people's religion is, but it's what we were founded on. Using that as their motive should have broke so many laws. Yet again, it didn't. These these three boys, this was their life. They had they knew nothing of Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, but they were about to lose their lives because of it. At this point, the jury is being led from the room as attorneys are bickering over the state motive. And this is one I might add, the judge never took a moment to look up and understand fully, which you would think if that's the case coming into his courtroom, he would want to know any language that could be used that he was unfamiliar with, yet he didn't. As for Jason and tying him to this occult-related activity, they looked at the color of his wardrobe. That was brought into question. You know, he wears black all the time. So do most teenage kids. <laughs> My daughter probably owns more black than she owns color. I own more black than I own color. It's very slimming. Let's just throw that out there. But it, it doesn't mean I worship the devil. It doesn't mean my kid worships the devil. And it sure as hell doesn't mean that Jason does. Does he love heavy metal music? Yes. Most kids did in the 90s. It was very grungy. They were, you know, concert t-shirts. All, all boys were. It, it was just a phase. And I'm not trying to belittle the fact that, he, I mean, maybe he still wears concert tees. I don't know. But if his love for music goes that far, it's because music speaks to him on a different level. And to me, he probably has a very eclectic taste. My husband and my daughter both, they, they both see music in a different light than me. 
and I don't fully understand it, but that does not mean they're wrong or they're capable of doing something this heinous. So to pin that onto a 16-year-old child is, it's just mind-boggling to me. Was this all enough to accuse him of murder? No, but before Bernard could answer, everyone was reminded of Carson's statement saying, you know, Jason said he sucked the blood from the penis of Christopher. And that is something occults believe give them power. And so Burnett's like, I'm going to allow this line of questioning into occult-related activities. That was, that was, you know, perfectly placed information. Once again, there was a request to sever the trials. Um, as there was going to be extensive testimony coming up regarding Damien's knowledge and interest in the occult. Yet again, they are not granted. But here's the thing. With each request to sever the trials, prosecution gives Jason an opportunity for a plea bargain. If he pleads guilty, the state would request 40 years, which means it would afford him the opportunity to make parole at some point. With good behavior, that could occur in as little as 10 to 15 years. All he had to do beyond pleading guilty to his part in it is to testify against Damien. And as you can tell, we turn Jesse, if we can turn Jason, we're going to nail Damien, who they wanted from the get-go. But, but Jason had this to say, quote, Ford encouraged me to do it, but I was like, nah, this isn't right. I made the decision on my own. Right then and there, it was flat out no. Ford said, well, I still had to ask. Jason was so sure, like the others, of his own innocence, he was willing to risk being put to death at the age of 16 to prove it. At the time of this happening, Damien was never privy to the information that Jason was offered plea deal after plea deal after plea deal. Later on, he does learn of this, and I hope that, I know there is something driven between Damien and Jason and their friendship, but I hope that both of them can see how much the other believed in, in each other on where they stood as far as being innocent or guilty. Dina Holcomb, she she got up on the stand next for the state. She testifies to Damien's choice of color in his wardrobe being black, and he also sometimes carried knives on his person. And Fogelman showed her the knife from the lake found out behind Jason's trailer, and he asked, you know, had Damien had a knife similar to this or like this? And she said, yeah, she had seen it in his trench coat one time when they hugged. Who remembers that? Really? And did you see the whole thing? The state's moving forward with the motive of cult activity and engineering that freight train that would lay its tracks down right through the lives of Damien and Jason. And I'm going to consistently call this a railroad every chance because that's exactly what this was. They honed in on the fact that there was a full moon on the evening of May 5th and that was part of their judicial motive. Defense jumped up, they objected, but surprise, surprise, Barnett sided with the prosecution. In enter 
PhD Del Griffiths. He's a cult expert. His testimony was to elaborate on Detective Ridge's testimony of the kills of the killings being cult related. The jury was dismissed for over three hours, so Burnett could hear Griffith's testimony and determine whether or not it was pertinent to the jury's knowledge. Well, here's here's a rundown. Griffiths has 26 years of law enforcement experience. He has a doctoral degree. Doctoral is air quotes because he got it from air quote Columbia Pacific, an unaccredited school at this time. He owned a consulting practice related to Satanism. Jerry Driver and him had talked half a dozen times before the murders based on his experience with cult-related activity. Ford, Jason's attorney, brought into question, though, Griffiths' classes that he took to obtain that degree. And he did. He, 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 you know, what classes? How many classes did you have to take in order to get your PhD? His answer? None. Zero. Zilch. Nada. He paid to print off a document that said he had a PhD, basically is what he did. He didn't have to show classwork. He didn't have to attend any semesters. He just paid a fee. And what? He's got a PhD and he is, you know, qualified to be an expert witness. Bullshit. Price was with us. He had heard enough. He, and he jumped up and he said, quote, on behalf of my client, it's our position that the mail order PhD in which a person doesn't have to take classes from a non-accredited school doesn't qualify as an expert in Arkansas, end quote. Burnett said, I disagree. I'm going to allow him to testify in the area of the occult. Funnily enough, Fogelman will later say that learning that Griffiths' uh, admission on the stand and how he was unaware of how Griffiths attained his PhD was probably one of the most embarrassing moments in his career. Still, Griffiths testified at the difference between an occult and a cult. I said occult and cult. An occult is a group involved in es esoteric science that have been around prior to Christianity. A cult is a group composed of those who follow a charismatic leader and among their beliefs, they break their law. So, okay, in, in a cult, is there a significance to the number three? And he said one of the most powerful numbers in practice of satanic belief is 666. And some believe the base root of six is three. And so they're like, well, is there significance to Christianity or any other religions? And Griffith says, I cannot make that statement. Was he familiar with the Christian beliefs of the Trinity, the three in one? And Griffith said he was. But he believed that the murders were cult-related and some of Damien's drawings, particularly on of an individual that had a head of a satanic goat. Price jumps up, objects, because this material was taken from Damien's home prior to the murders. But Burnett allows it. 
Vogelman skillfully pointed out these materials were related to Damien's belief system and state of mind. Davis also pointed out that the timing of Damien's beliefs was not relevant. A person's idea, which might be a motive for causing them to act, continued over a course of time. Damien's books, drawings, his writings, all of that that, that occurred prior to the murders were now admissible to the court. Ford got up and asked Griffiths if there was any evidence that, quote, establishes a link between Jason Baldwin and the occult, end quote. And Griffiths tells him no. And Ford asks, you know, are all crimes of this nature occultic in nature? Are all murders where these types of injuries happen, are they all occultic? And Griffiths says no. However, with the presence of the full moon on May 5th and the dates, it all suggested a cult. Burnett qualifies Griffiths' testimony and the jury is allowed back in for them to hear exactly what he had to say. The final witnesses for the state were two young girls and one of those girls' mothers. The girls are not shown on, on camera. Their names were not released. These girls say that they heard Damien say at a, at a softball game that he killed those three boys. And the girl was asked, you know, about how far away was Damien from you? And 15 feet was the number that was given. And she said that there were six or seven other people with Damien. And if she, she, she was asked if she could identify any of those six or seven and she said if they were in the courtroom that day she she wouldn't recognize them yet she was able to recognize Damien and I wouldn't say that if Damien Jason and Jesse or even if it was just Damien and Jason were in on this together they probably did not veer far from the others presence following the murders so if Damien's out at a softball field hooping and hollering about how he murdered these three kids, wouldn't Jason be there with him? And wouldn't these girls be able to identify Jason? It's not entirely impossible for Jason to not be there. It's just questionable because, I, I don't know, having somebody else have control of your life in a way that one would had you committed murder with them. So, you know, could you fully trust that they wouldn't say anything? No, not really. Especially if they're running around town and everybody's saying, you know, Damien said he killed him. If I was Jason, I'd be like, dude, I'm going wherever you're going because you can keep your mouth shut. Stop saying stuff. You know, we're going to get caught. It does not matter. He's not recognized in the courtroom that day at all. One reporter wrote following the conclusion of the state's case, quote, when the prosecution rested the state's case about all he proved was one, that the murders had indeed occurred, and two, how the victims died. It proved the deed in the how, but not the who, the why, the where, or even the when. It's who, why, where, and when, where, guesswork, rumor, and bad courtroom vaudeville. 
No motive. Opportunity not clearly established. Time of death disputed. And not a single shred of tangible evidence linking any of the defendants to the crime. End quote. This is concerning in a case where the state's seeking the death penalty. Just putting that out there. Ford petitions to the judge to issue an immediate verdict, something the judge is capable of doing when the evidence is deemed glaringly insufficient for acquittal based on, and these, this is what Ford, you know, says, this is why I'm asking for the acquittal. There's lack of evidence to place Jason at the scene of the crime. There's no eyewitnesses identifying him as a perpetrator. There's no evidence tying him to the act of, of homicide. There's no introduction of evidence linking him to the homicide. Burnett rules he found what had occurred during the state's case was more than sufficient and, and refused Ford's request. Damien's defense team jumps up, requests the same thing, and ends up with the same ruling. Damien's defense felt it was battling shadows, but started with his alibi when they took over, and it was the defense's turn to present their case. And like with Jesse's trial, I'm not going to give you much of the defense's case. They had to prove doubt. It's obvious there was no doubt proven, so let me give you the prosecution's case. Let me show you what they presented in order to solidify that doubt could not be rammed into the jury at all. It's completely oppositional of what I of where I stand. And I figure what what better way than to show you the opposite of what I believe, right? So Pam Ankles, she gets up and she's the first to testify for Damien's defense. And she says that on May 5th, 1993, from about 4 p.m. on, Damien was with the family. Davis, he attacks her on cross, claiming and accusing her, at the very least, at confusing her times. However, Michelle, Damien's sister, she gets up, testifies to the same story, along with three other family members saying the same story that Pam Eccles told the courtroom. Guess who's up on the stand next? And most of us are like, ooh, this is suicide. But I think, I think by doing this, he simply wanted to show everyone he wasn't the person they were painting him out to be. Damien Eccles took the stand in his own defense. Now, it is every right to take the stand. Every defendant has that right. Not every defendant invokes that right. So, up first, he was asked about how he chose his name, which we know came from Father Damien, who treated lepers. And we reviewed that in episode two. Next up was questioning into Damien's writings. And he was asked to read his words and where they came from. This one, quote, life is but a walking shadow. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. This was found from Midsummer Night's Dream. This was part of Damien's writings that were into question and, and the state used to occult-related activities. 
The next one he read aloud was, Pure black looking clear. My work is done here. Try getting back from me that which you used to be. This came from the lyrics of a Metallica tape, Injustice for All. Another of his writings were, I kicked open a lot of doors in my time, and I'm willing to wait for this one to open. And when it does, I will be waiting. That came from the Twilight Zone. So as they're saying, you know, all of these different, these different quotes, these different paragraphs, these different entries, they show occult-related activity. They show how, how much Damien was in the middle of all of this. And really, he just seemed to pull things from things he read or heard or, you know, these, these words, they're not necessarily his words. They just said something to him when he read them or heard them and he wrote it down. That doesn't show occult-related activity to me. That shows me a typical teenager. Teenagers, adults write down quotes all the time. I hand you one at the end of every episode. Quoting others, it's not, it doesn't show occult activity. And if it does, well, I'm your leader. No, I'm just kidding. But still, I mean, you know, come on. And this was said, as far as several things that Griffiths was talking about yesterday, about Satanism beliefs, are there any of those thinkings that he was talking about that are your personal beliefs? This is what Price had to ask Damien. Damien said, not really. On May 10th, five days following the murders, Damien was brought in for questioning for the first time. And he was asked if he requested an attorney. And Damien said he did on three separate occasions during an eight-hour interview. At one point, Pam Ackles picks up the phone and she calls a lawyer out in Memphis. He also happened to be a state senator and she, she asked him, you know, to help her son. So he gets in the car, drives over to West Memphis PD, and he asked to speak with Damien and he is immediately refused. And it doesn't matter how much sugar talking, how much legal jargon he threw, they weren't letting him in. So he stood around for a while and then he tried again. And at this point, he was told the building was closed and that he was not allowed to have access to Damien, who was upstairs being interrogated at the time. This is something that is later confirmed. Up next is Christopher Morgan. He was on the witness list for both sides. And again, the defense wants to question him. And Burnett, again, denies until it's suggested that they do an in-camera session, which is what we've been hearing them do time and time again. Jerry leaves the room. Burnett hears what the testimony is. He decides whether or not the jury needs to hear it. Well, Burnett agrees to this. The jury's escorted from the room. Christopher Morgan gets up, takes the stand, and refuses any answers to any questions regarding his testimony in California. He answers nothing. There's nothing for the jury to hear. So it's never, he's never questioned in front of the jury. Jason Baldwin, he never took the stand in his own defense. Again, he has a right to, he does not have to invoke it. 17 days from the start of the trial on March 15th, 1994, 
Fogelman stood and began making his closing arguments, followed by Price and Ford. On March 17, 1994, the jury went into deliberations at 5 p.m. They came out of deliberations at around 9 p.m. and entered back in the next day, March 18, 1994. By 3.30 p.m. that evening, the jury had come back with a verdict. The two teens stood as Burnett read their fate. Both Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin were found guilty of capital murder in the death of Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers. Jason Baldwin was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for all three counts of capital murder. He left the courtroom that day and was transported to the Arkansas Department of Corrections. Damien Eccles stood motionless when Judge Burnett sentenced him to death on May 5, 1994. Instead of death, looming over him was the words of Burnett. Damien, Jason, and Jesse Miss Kelly would spend 17 years inside the Arkansas Department of Justice. Damien living each year on death row, filing appeals with the hopes to save his life. In 1996 and 1997, regarding possible teeth imprints, all three teens submitted their impressions as there was possible teeth imprints left on Stevie Branch's face, something not mentioned in the 1994 trials. None of their teeth matched the imprint lifted from Stevie's face. Speculation of John Mark Byers was on the rise as the public learned he had his teeth removed and replaced with dentures in 1997 before imprints could be made. In 2003, Vicki Hutchinson recanted her story, saying each and every word she gave to law enforcement was a lie. She went further to say that her child would be taken away had she not assisted the police. She also alleges that the unintelligible audio they had was perfectly clear and offered nothing incriminating. DNA testing and new evidence was presented in 2007. DNA collected from the scene was tested. Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly were not a match. A hair not inconsistent with Stevie Branch's stepfather, Terry Hobbs, was found on the scene. Another hair at the scene was consistent with Terry Hobbs' friend, David Jacoby. Pam Hobbs and her sister stated that she found in her ex-husband's nightstand a knife that Stevie had carried with him constantly, and Pam believed Stevie to have had that knife on the night he died. In 2008, it was revealed that Kent Arnold, the jury foreman for Eccles and Baldwin's trial, had discussed the case with an attorney prior to beginning of deliberations. He was accused of advocating for the guilt of West Memphis Three. He was also accused of sharing evidence with the rest of the jury that had otherwise been determined inadmissible. Many legal experts agreed that this issue could result in a reversal of the convictions of Baldwin and Eccles. On October 29, 2007, Damien's attorneys filed federal court papers seeking a retrial for his immediate release from prison stating that there was DNA evidence linking Terry Hobbs to the crime scene, along with statements from his now ex-wife. On September 10, 2008, Circuit Court Judge David Burnett, the one who sided with Fogelman with each ruling, denied the request for retrial, as the DNA tests were inconclusive. 
On September 30th of 2010, Burnett's ruling was appealed with the Arkansas Supreme Court. November 4th, 2010, the Arkansas Supreme Court ordered a lower judge to consider whether newly analyzed DNA evidence might exonerate the now men. On August 19th, 2011, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly were released from prison as part of a plea deal, making the hearings ordered by the Arkansas Supreme Court unnecessary. The three entered the Alford plea, offering them all time served. Damian Eccles walked out of death row a free man. Jason Baldwin exited the gates, finally freeing him from his never-ending nightmare. And Jesse Miss Kelly breathed in his first brush of breath air since 1993. Supporters pushed for Governor Mike Beebe to pardon Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly based on their innocence. Beebe said he would deny the request unless he saw evidence proving someone else committed the murders. The DNA results were offered to be ran until a match was found, even through the now infamous CODIS system, by Prosecutor Scott Ellington, who still believes the men are guilty. He did admit he had the men sought a retrial, an acquittal was highly likely with the loss of evidence over time, change in heart of witnesses, and the now powerful legal team representing the three. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight on this highly anticipated and incredibly long episode to close out this case. It has been a wild ride. One I showed more from the side that was so sure they had their killers. Why, you might ask? Simply, the holes in this case were just as glaring no matter what side you were presented with. As always, I leave you with one last line. Failure at some point in your life is inevitable, but giving up is unforgivable. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>